I think uh, the occasion this morning has meant that the, the old has-beens have been resurrected one more time, so it's, <laughs> it's good to be with you again. I look back very fondly with, uh, for the eight and a half years that I was pastor here, uh, not only because of the congregation as it was, but um, the beginnings of our relationship with uh, uh, the church that now is. And uh, it's good to come back and to uh, uh, see old friends and, and together, uh, I think I counted half a dozen kisses from old girlfriends as well, so that, <laughs> so that was uh, the highlight of my day so far. Uh, Judy uh, does send her greetings and her regrets that she's not here this morning. Both of us wish to thank you for your support over her recent ill health. And uh, Judy was in quite a serious uh, situation. She had been for a year and a half or so, and her weight had dropped down to 47 kilogram. Um, and uh, uh, the procedures that were designed to correct the problem that was causing all of this were not working and taking their toll on her. And she eventually collapsed down the street and was taken off to hospital uh, in an emergency situation. Uh, that was a good thing as it turned out because it concentrated all of the um, departments of the hospital that would have been uh, involved in her care and uh, eventually after a fortnight uh, surgery was uh, uh, undertaken and uh, I'm very pleased to tell you that it, its effects were almost immediate and that Judy has had a quite a remarkable recovery. The reason why she's not here today is that uh, her elderly father in Wagga is failing. Uh, his short-term memory is, is uh, failing particularly. And uh, with her brother from Sydney, they're looking at alternative uh, avenues of care. He's 95, still living independently, uh, but those days, unfortunately, are, are numbered. And uh, this was something of a rush uh, happening with her brother's availability and uh, she left uh, last Thursday and uh, obviously would, wouldn't be able to be here for today. So she does send her greetings and her apologies for not being present. Um, I've already said how grateful I was for the eight and a half time, eight and a half years that I was here as pastor and I want to repeat that. Um, I guess every church that I've served has its highlights uh, but your warm welcome, your great care of both Judy and myself, your partnership in ministry uh, were always a delight to me. And um, I'm pleased to be able to say that uh, when I had the stroke some years ago, it didn't affect my memory one little bit, and so I don't have to be told by others, well, you had a good time there at, uh, at, at Bulleen, and I, I'm not sort of looking at them vaguely saying, what, what, Bulleen? I no, I remember it very, very clearly. And uh, I'm grateful to God uh, for the fellowship and for the ministry that we shared. Now, having taken up the full half hour for the sermon in my greeting, I better get around at least to the scripture reading. From Romans chapter 12 and verses 9 to 18. Romans 12, 9 to 18. It will be up on the screen. You're welcome, of course, to follow it in your own scriptures or to see it in front of you. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another 
above yourselves. And we seem to have stuck. Oh, there we go. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, if it is possible. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now the context of that particular passage of scripture is interesting. It's in the context of Paul speaking to the Roman church about the concept of the church, the group of people gathered together who love the Lord, the concept of the church as a human body. And so it comes, for example, Romans chapter 12, verse 5, just a few verses before the passage that we read, in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now note here two things. First of all, independent individuals. We who are many, each member. You know, each of us become Christians as an individual. And we need to re-emphasize this. You're not a Christian because you're born into a Christian family any more than being born into a garage makes you a car. It just doesn't work like that. You're not a Christian because you internalise an ethos, a, a, a set of practices and beliefs. Now that's just an intellectual exercise. You are a Christian because at a point in time you responded to the love of God which had been chasing you. And you responded in such a way that you put Christ as your head and you submitted to his leadership and you accepted that the only way that you could be in a relationship with, with God was not because you earned it, but because of his grace. You accepted his forgiveness. And on his part, he made you a member of his family. But you didn't get to be a member of that family by any other way except coming to him as an individual but once you did become, sorry, once you did come to him as an individual, you became a part of the family. By one spirit are we baptised into one body. And that scripture doesn't speak about water baptism. It speaks about that which the water baptism symbolises. That is that the spirit of God takes us and immerses us into the body of Christ. That's part of the process of conversion that God does in us and for us. At the end of that first Christian sermon in the second chapter of Acts, as Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost, the comment is that over 3,000 were added to the body that day. Now what does that mean? 
doesn't mean that 3,000 people were baptised, were interviewed for church membership, a church meeting was held, and they said, oh, yes, let's take that 3,000 on. No, it doesn't mean any of those human processes. It means that by virtue of their confession of faith in Jesus, at that point, they became part of the body of Christ by the grace of God. And anything that we do in a human process simply mirrors what God has already done for us. Walter Eichrod wrote two rather heavy volumes of Old Testament theology. I confess that I've never picked it up as light and easy reading, either volume for that matter. That's heavy going. That's full of little gold nuggets, by the way. It's worth the heavy going, although these days I tend to doze off after two or three pages. However, this particular golden nugget is a beauty. Old Testament faith knows nothing in any situation or at any time of a religious individualism which gives a person a private relationship with God but unconnected with the community, either in its roots, its realisation or its goal. Commenting on the New Testament, David Watson in his book Discipleship, Jesus calls individuals not to stay in isolation but to join the new community of God's people. The New Testament knows nothing of the solitary Christian. Christ calls us into fellowship, both with him and with those who have become his disciples. There is, you see, a continuity between the Old Testament and the New. God is calling a people for himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, echoing Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, and also a couple of passages in Deuteronomy, has this to say. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That particular verse picks up themes of the Old Testament and is indebted to the Old Testament in almost every word and phrase. The continuity of the Old and New Testaments is this, that God has been calling a people for himself to live together into community, to display the grace of God and be a channel to the rest of the world of that grace. So then let's turn our attention to what I've entitled this morning as a one another community. Picking up the phrases of that original scripture reading. First of all, the genesis of community. Where did the idea come from? Using the word genesis in the idea of beginnings. You know, there was one thing in creation that wasn't good. You recall the refrain, the, the, the method of symmetry in those verses of creation, that God saw what he'd made and it was good, repeated over and over again until he gets to man. Now, the women in the congregation would agree with this, that there is a fault in God's creation. There's something that doesn't quite measure up. But all jokes aside, this has nothing to do with gender whatsoever. The word here for man is anthropon. It simply means human beings. God said it's not good for the human to be alone. 
Now, this is an extraordinary admission. God made something that wasn't good. But why is it not good? And what measure is used? Think about this for a moment. In the process of creation, the only measure of what was good or not was God himself. Now, I was involved, and those who know me will not be surprised at this, in renovating uh, a daughter and son-in-law's laundry yesterday. I was ripping plaster sheets off the wall with great abandon. I'm in my element doing stuff like that. And I had occasionally the need to measure something. It wasn't all just guesswork. So I had a measure, literally. If I wanted to see if I had a big enough bit of wood, I took a tape measure and I measured it to see whether it would fulfill the duty that I had intended for it. I didn't just guess whether it was good enough, I had a measure. I could say, well, yes, I can use that bit of timber, or no, I can't, because I had a measure. I had something external to the thing itself in order to measure the materials that I was using. Now, what did God have in order to measure his creation, to come up with the summation, oh, yes, it's good, or it's not good? I put it to you that the only thing God had was himself. Does this measure up to me? Is the question that God was asking. And so each statement, it is good, is a statement that what I have made measures up to me. It's an expression of my character and personality in every aspect. It's good. But here is something which is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, do you get what that's saying? First of all, it says that in the inclusive pairing, of male and female, I'm not speaking of marriage here, but simply the fact that the two genders exist. And it's just as well that God wasn't in the gender theory because we would have had a mess of a verse at this point. But just two. In the existence of a incipient community of two, the nature of God is expressed. Do you get that? When the two combine with their outlooks, their talents, their abilities, their roles, there is a wholeness. Now again, I am not saying that marriage completes a person. Life is a little more complicated than that. And that's not what this verse is saying. It is simply saying that the existence of the human race in male and female reflects the character of God. Let's have a look at this. This is Jesus praying, John chapter 17. Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. Let that hit you heavily for a minute. You know, when we speak about God being one in three and three in one, as Brother Howard did at the start of the service, 
It sounds like heavy theology, doesn't it? Now, I studied theology formally for five years. I was a slow learner. In my second year, I actually won a prize in theology. I came first in my class. There was only five of us, and it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> but anyway, I've still got the book somewhere that was awarded to me. So of all people, I ought to know everything about the Trinity, wouldn't you think? I've been a pastor for over 40 years. Heavens above that long. Yes. By now, I should have plumbed its depths and soared to its heights. Yeah, right. I still have little idea of how to tie it all together. But this much I know that it is in the warp and the woof of Scripture itself. We haven't time to go into that. But listen to that verse again. Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. Here is God. Forget the theory of the Trinity and all the rest of it. Just concentrate on this. Here is God who is not a solitary individual. You get that? Here is God who is more than one. Although to throw a bit of theology in, he is one. There you go, go figure that one out. Okay. But here is God who exists in community. And here is the Father and the Son who exist in a relationship of love before the world was created. Do you get that? So here is the solitary man all by himself. It's not good that man should be alone. Why? Because it doesn't measure up to God. God is in community. You see, you and I are wired for community. Not because of our DNA, but because we are made in his image. And of all of the things that that might mean, it means this, that we are wired, we are built to live together in community, not as isolated individuals. There are a number of barriers to community, Christian community, and I could list a half a dozen. We, we could talk about the barrier of sin that tends to drive us apart and destroy the very thing that we were made for. Take, for example, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. And then when God casts him out, he says, don't do this to me. You're cutting yourself off. You're cutting me off, rather, from yourself. And you're making me a wanderer without roots in the world. Well, yes, Cain, that's exactly what you did when you killed your brother. Why do you complain that you're now alone when sin led you to do the very thing that caused you to be alone? Aren't we in our fallen state pathetic? We destroy the thing that we need. Now, I could talk about that, but I won't. I want to do this one. But words matter. The barrier to Christian community. What if I said to you, you need to be committed to the church? How would that register in your minds? You might think, well, I need to be committed to a building? For heaven's sakes, man, they're in the state of pulling the darn thing down. You want me to, you want me to be committed to the building? It's changing. 
Uh, my home church, Manifold Heights in Geelong, I used to go back occasionally either as a visitor or if they were desperate as a preacher. And I turned up one Sunday to, to do an anniversary sermon and they were in the middle of remodeling the front end of the auditorium. Now that building was constructed just a couple of years after my dad died in the late 60s. And um, uh, mum and I uh, had paid for uh, uh, the main communion chair. And it was the heaviest, it needed a block and tackle to shift it. I tell you, it was the heaviest chair ever, ever built. And it was front and centre in the stage and it was about to be shifted to the side because the whole thing was being remodelled. I thought, well, over time it was badly designed in the first place, frankly. Um, um, but it was causing great uh, angst with the community. And I got collared after the service by a couple of dear old ladies uh, who were fond of reminding me that they used to change my nappy when I was a little baby boy <laughs> going along to the, uh, to the women's group on Tuesdays. And I, I was always a bit embarrassed about that. I mean, I was 38, 40 years old. And, and here's these dear old ladies who, who knew everything about me. Oh, uh, and anyway, they tackled me and they said, you must, you must be against this. I said, what, what am I against? I said, oh, you, you must be against the, sh the shifting of the building. They're going to take the communion chair with the plaque in memory to your father, Jack, and they're going to put it to the side. And I said, I couldn't care less whether they take it outside and chop it into kindling. They said, what? <laughs> At that point, I'm quite sure that they wished they had stuck a pin in me <laughs> rather than Abby. I said, what do you mean? I said, it's just a bit of wood, just a chair. I don't care where it goes. We paid for it, we bought it because it was useful to the church. At that point, if it's no longer useful, if it wants to be shifted, wants to be altered, so be it. I said, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not kidding. We're not committed to buildings or anything in them. The domination. I'm a Baptist by persuasion, not just by the fact that mum and dad happen to go to a Baptist church. But I'm not in love with the denomination. My commitment is not to it. My commitment is to something far deeper than that. But you see, we've got a problem. All of those associations are wrong. But I guarantee you, when you hear the word church, that's probably one of the first things you think about. A building somewhere. In fact, we even call... I bent over backwards to call this the auditorium when I turned up here because this is not the church. Guess what, folks? You are the church. This is just bricks and mortar. God doesn't bless it. We can't dedicate it to him. It means nothing except as a way to keep the rain off. It has a utilitarian purpose only. It's not blessed. It's not consecrated. You can line up half a dozen bishops to bless it and it won't make a single difference to the idea that it's just bricks. This is not the church, but we've got a problem with language that gets in the way. How do we get to this state? In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language in which most of the Old Testament is written, except for a few chapters here and there in Aramaic, there is a Hebrew word, kwahal, and it means called out assembly. And so the Old Testament translation of that word into English in your own Bibles is usually, most often, always, not quite always, one or two 
differences because of context, is congregation, community, or assembly, because that's the most accurate word in English that measures up to the Hebrew quahal. For example, Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The NIV Bible of that verse has the whole community of the children of Israel. Both are valid translations of the Hebrew quahal into English. Now in the New Testament, written in Greek, there is a word ecclesia. It comes from the combination of two Greek words, ek, out of, and kaleo, to call. Ecclesia, to call out of. Its literal English translation is called out. The implication and the context in which it is used is an assembly of people, a group of people called out for a specific purpose. And this is illustrated at least in one point. Oh, I'm ahead of myself. I better follow the overhead rather than my memory. Now, ecclesia, interestingly enough, the Greek word ecclesia is used for the Hebrew word quahal in Greek translations of the Old Testament. The one that uh, came before all others was a translation known as the Septuagint, which was completed around about 180 years before Jesus was born. Because by the time Jesus was born, Greek was the common language of the ancient world. The Romans might have conquered it, but the Greeks had already conquered it in terms of culture and language. And so when the Old Testament, before Jesus was born, was translated, this was the translation. Wherever quahal appeared in the Hebrew, it was translated into the Greek as ecclesia, because they're basically the same, a called out people. In the New Testament, the word church is translated for ecclesia, except for this one passage, an angry meeting of citizens in Ephesus. The assembly, Ecclesia, was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. This was in response to Christian missionaries who had come, who were preaching, and the whole town was in uproar because they saw it as an attack on their own idols. And so the citizens were assembled to uh, decide what to do about these meddlesome Christian missionaries that had turned up in their midst. It was an assembly of the town citizens. They were called out for a purpose. That is the only place in the New Testament where the Greek word ecclesia is accurately translated. You see, it's not a word for church at all. It doesn't even have a religious connotation. It just means a group of people called out for a specific purpose, a community that comes together for a mission. So how on earth did we get from quahal, ecclesia, a community of people, to the word church? Well, it's an interesting story. Kyriakos is the word in Greek, and it means belonging to the Lord. At least this is close, a people belonging to God. Old Testament, New Testament, okay? So far it makes sense. So Kyriakos in the Greek went to Kirsch in Latin, and that went to Kirk in Scotland, and it went to church in English. So how did that get to be 
the translation for ecclesia. By the way, kyriakos is used twice in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11.10, the supper belonging to the Lord, the Lord's Supper. And then in Revelation 1.10, the day belonging to the Lord, the Lord's day. They're the only two occasions where the Greek word behind the English word church actually appears. So how come? Well, I actually haven't put that up on the screen. Let me explain it to you very quickly. You're familiar with the King James Version. It was called the King James Version because when it was produced in 1611, the English King James, who was a Scot, and therefore familiar with the word kirk, because that was the Scottish word that had been used for some time for the word uh, ecclesia. King James, the King of Scotland, was on the throne of England, and he called together all of the translators, and he bankrolled the whole thing, and he gave them a list of instructions on how they were to proceed. Now, King James was by no means a little theologian. He was extremely well-read, and he didn't go into many specifics. He just said to them, basically, you do a thoroughly good job and you translate the scriptures from the Hebrew and the Greek into the best possible translation that you can do. And then he put one little condition in there. But when you come across the word ecclesia, you must use the word church. <laughs> yes, you can check this out, look it up on the web. <laughs> Why did he say that? Because King James was conscious that the first English Bibles used the words community and assembly, not church, to translate Ecclesia. And he was not pleased. We are not amused. Why? Because he was the head and defender of the church. Because he was king. That was his role. And it was a state church. And it was under siege from people who said, no, the power is in individual congregation, not in a state church. We don't want to belong to it. And he said, I want to brainwash my people. Well, he didn't say that. That's what he meant. He said, I want it easier for them to think of a church as an institution rather than a community as a group of people. He had a political agenda. And the translators went along with it. Why? Because they could justify it, belonging to the Lord, a people belonging to God. Yeah, that sounds good. And they weren't about to defy the king. Why? Because in those days, you could find your life very, very risky. And after all, he was paying the bills. And that's why we got the word church in the Bible as an English translation of Ecclesia. And that's why for many people... The idea that you can be committed to the church means a whole lot of things instead of it meaning commitment to the assembly, to the congregation, to the community. No matter what word is used, the concept behind them is exactly the same, that God is calling out a people who belong to him. For you are a people holy to God the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And as we've already indicated, 1 Peter virtually repeats that in the New Testament. Yes, different words but all mean the same thing, but unfortunately the word church encourages, encourages the loss of the idea of community, a people 
belonging to God, with the emphasis just now on belonging to God, but a people. We're not called to be committed to buildings or traditions or institutions, but to each other. So remember the story behind the use of the word church. Just as an aside, every so often you'll come across a book, particularly in modern prophecy authors, who will tell you that the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's a new thing. It's plan B on God's agenda. What a load of codswallop. First of all, it's accurate. Yes, the word church is not used in the Old Testament because it's a Greek word that went to Latin, that went to Scottish, <coughs> that went to English. Of course it's not used in the Old Testament because the Old Testament was written thousands of years beforehand in Hebrew. So yes, they're dead accurate. You won't find church in the Old Testament, but you will find kwahal, ecclesia, in old and new, which mean exactly the same thing. A people called out by God. And the authors of those books, if they have any degree in theology, ought to know it. They lie. They have their own agenda for doing so. They are wrong, profoundly wrong. God only has one people called out Old and New Testaments by his grace to be his people. And you and I are part of that one people of God built on the foundation of the prophets and of the apostles, Old and New Testament. One people, one community. Three key community concepts and I'll go through this a little more quickly than perhaps I should because I've rattled on, which is probably the first time I've ever done that. <laughs> the first key concept, we are a community of reconciliation. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Interestingly enough, those that I said a minute ago said the church doesn't exist in the Old Testament. It's God's new invention, plan B. They use this verse to justify it. The church is a mystery. We haven't heard about it. No, the church is not a mystery. The makeup of the community of God was the mystery. That now all who love the Lord, irrespective of their racial origins, are part of the people of God. The mystery is not the church. The mystery is that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. The great divide of the ancient world, Jew and Gentile. In Galatians, Paul talks about male, female, slave and free, other great divides, all one in Christ. The community of God's people is a community of reconciliation in action. We are a community on display before the world. Ephesians 3.10, his intent was that through the ecclesia, through the church, the wisdom of God shall be made known according to his purposes through which he accomplished in Christ. You want to see what God is up to? Then look closely at a functioning Christian community. See how they love one another. See how they serve one another. See how they honour one another. 
See how they come together from different racial backgrounds. See how they love one another. Look at everything that divides us in the world, but see how they love one another. Here is my grace, says God in action. Here is this community of people reflecting my design, my purpose. We are on display. When community goes wrong, a community generally comes down on our backs. Towards the end of my active ministry, things had changed from the start. Where once, 40 years ago, I had a car park at a hospital that said, chaplain, <laughs> I could pull up and park. These days, I'd go in and say, can I visit? So, oh, the family hasn't listed you as a visitor. Sorry, no, you can't. What? What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Pastors, priests couldn't keep their fly zipped up. And because community broke down and the vulnerable were abused vilely, supposedly in the name of Christ. So anybody these days that admits to being a pastor, oh, so you're a pedophile in training, are you? I actually had someone say that to me. When the Christian community breaks down, whether it's justified or not, the general community will lay the fault at our door and say you were hypocrites. My friends, the, true, the reverse is also true. When Christian community shines, when it's active, there is the presence and the grace of God. And the community is entitled to make that judgment fairly or unfairly because that's what the scriptures say. Love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. Jesus invites the community to judge based on the quality of our fellowship one another in community. So what do we do? Do we get angry that we've been unfairly tarred with a brush of perverts? No. We work overtime to make sure that amongst us, community is real and that it shines. It should have said this is a community under construction. I obviously didn't alter concept two to concept three, but there you go. I'm fallible and I'm old. <laughs> to him, in him you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is a continual phrase. Continually being built together. We're never a finished product. We're never perfect. Not only are we on display before the world, we're in the process of becoming. And that means that when we fail... How we deal with that failure is also an example to the world of Christian community. Forgiveness, grace, all of these things are the necessary building blocks, the mortar, if you will, 
that holds that building under construction together. And then finally, there is a powerful imperative for the one another community. It is these verses of one another, and these will be brief. These one another verses define our fellowship. We honour one another, we accept one another, we serve one another, we love one another, we offer hospitality, we have humility toward one another, we are compassionate to one another. You see, that defines what community means. What's the church on about? Well, you could talk about overseas mission. Yes, you could, validly. You could talk about the activities of the local assembly. Mm, yes, you could do that. But you better point to these because these are what drive overseas missions, cross-cultural activity. This is what drives what we do together as a people. This is where the emphasis ought to be because anything of worth will flow out of the quality of community. The one another verses also indicate how growth is to be facilitated. We are to instruct one another. Hey, folks, I've been a religious expert for 40-odd years. I've been instructing people left, right and centre. And so have you. Every time you have contact with one another, every time a word is said, every time a helpful attitude is displayed, do not ever downplay the, cons the, the role that you have to encourage, to instruct, to teach, to admonish and to spur one another onwards to good deeds. A healthy community will do that, not just in formal teaching roles, but in informal relationships every time we come together. And then finally, reconciliation is practised. Bear with one another. What does that mean? It means that there is an uncomfortable coot in our midst and we've got to bear with him or her. Yes, it means exactly that. If they are a Christian brother and sister and their character, their personality still needs a fair bit of work, bear with one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Practice reconciliation. And here is the final word. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I've nothing more to say because that scripture, frankly, says it all. Amen.